we are going to be looking at our gospel text this morning. So if you will, uh, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And as you do that, I'll go ahead and pray for us. Gracious Father, thank you for bringing us here safely this morning. Uh, We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us once again through your word, that your gospel would be clear, uh, that it would lift up uh, anyone here who is burdened uh, by any weight of sin or any stress or anxiety, and that if anyone here uh, does not believe, Lord, we ask that it would, um, that you would preach to their heart, that you would open up their ears and hearts to receive your word and put their faith in you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew's opening to his gospel reads, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Verse 18 of our text says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Both words in these two verses, genealogy and birth, are really the same Greek word, genesis, that probably sounds familiar to you. When the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the translators titled the first book Genesis. And we still use this title today. We just pronounce it Genesis. Genesis is a fitting name for the first book in the Bible because it deals with origins. It contains the account of the beginning of the world. It records the origin of humanity and our relationship to God. More specifically, Genesis recounts how sin came into the world and distorted our relationship with God. If you ever find yourself wondering why the world is the way it is, why there's so much evil in the world, or why you keep sinning, just go back and read Genesis. Sin has separated us from God. Genesis is not only a diagnosis of the problem, it also serves as the beginning to the story of God's plan to fix the problem. And this plan takes shape in Genesis 12 with the story of Abraham. What is God's plan and what does Abraham have to do with it? Matthew answers that question in the first chapter of his gospel. He too is dealing with origins, but not the origin of the problem in the world. He's dealing with the origin of the solution. And that solution begins with the lineage of a man who comes from Abraham and David. Who is this man? Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Matthew divides the history of Israel into these four major sections. Abraham, the father of the entire nation. David, the greatest king over that nation. The exile of Judah to Babylon. And then the Christ. And the Christ, as you know, is the Messiah, God's anointed one. The Jews during Matthew's day have many opinions about the Messiah, what he'll be like, what he'll do. But the vast majority of people 
understood God promised that one of Abraham's descendants, more specifically a descendant of David, would bring relief to Israel and and rule over Israel. Most people believed he would come and defeat their earthly enemies, the Romans at, at the time, and that he would establish Israel as the superpower over all the other nations. Well, Matthew says that the Christ has now come. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Back in verse 16 of this chapter, you can look there, the the lineage ends curiously. Every man in the lineage is said to have been the father of the man after him. But when Matthew gets to Joseph, he does not say that he's the father of Jesus. Rather, he writes, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And here in verse 18, Matthew shows that that was not a typo. Mary became pregnant without Joseph. Now, Matthew tells us how this happened. It was from the Holy Spirit. And he'll come back to that in a little bit. Joseph, on the other hand, does not have that bit of information. Mary is betrothed to Joseph. Today, we call this being engaged. The engagement is that period between dating and marriage where you prepare for the wedding. Some people have long engagements. Others, like Angel and I had, have very short engagements. Now, there are similarities to our engagements today and betrothals in Joseph's day, but there are many, many differences. A betrothal back then was the period before the wedding, but one of the major differences is it was legally binding. To become betrothed, Joseph went to Mary's father and promised in a contract everything Mary would receive in his life um, and in his death. He paid the bride price for Mary, and then in the presence of witnesses, Mary and Joseph were bound to one another. Now, in the year or so to follow, preparations would be made for the official wedding feast when, when Joseph would come, get Mary, bring him home, and they would bring her home and, and consummate the marriage. But during that time of betrothal, Joseph and Mary are considered legally married. And so it's during that time, before they've come together, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary saying she will conceive and bear a son. Well, how will this be, she asks. I've never been with a man. Well, he says it's going to be through the Holy Spirit. But Joseph, understandably, doesn't buy that. If you're engaged to be married to a woman and you've not slept with her, but then you hear that she's pregnant and she says, well, it's from the Holy Spirit. Okay, she's probably not telling you the whole story. We don't know how Joseph hears the news, how it reached him, whether she told him or he heard or some other way. But either way, when he finds out, his heart must have sunk. 
Mary has cheated on me. If that's true, then he must divorce her. The betrothal bond has been broken. There are different ways of going about doing this. You you could keep things quiet and sign the divorce papers and be on your way, try try to get over her. Or you can go to the public and make a scene. You can drag your unfaithful betrothed to the court and in your rage, not only divorce them, but make sure the whole process hurts them. And have you ever been betrayed by someone you love? Has someone close to you ever done something so horrible to you that there's no way you can see the relationship mending? How easy is it in that moment to start playing in your mind scenes of getting back at them, giving them a taste of their own medicine? Revenge is sweet, or at least it it seems sweet. I have found myself many times in the past playing over in my mind how I would shame certain people who have hurt me. Joseph, he has been betrayed. He knows that he must divorce Mary because of infidelity. It's the law. But look at what he decides in verse 19. And our husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And the word for just is the same as righteous or to be upright, which makes this a bit odd. According to God's law, the penalty for adultery is death. And so a just man, a righteous man who follows God's law would have Mary stoned for what she did, right? But Joseph decides to divorce her quietly. How does this make Joseph just? To say that anyone is righteous or just is to compare them to the character of God. Righteousness comes from God. It is who he is. To be upright is to align yourself with God. And God's law requires punishment for adultery. Joseph divorces her quietly. Matthew tells us that he's unwilling to put Mary to shame. It's not hard for Joseph as the elder and and as a man in that society to utterly destroy Mary's reputation forever. No one would blame him for bringing Mary to the court and humiliating her before the public. In fact, people would have joined in on the mocking. But there is more to righteousness than just punishing sin. We'll see how in a little bit. But Joseph decides that he'll divorce Mary quietly with two or three witnesses only. And divorce back in that day was allowed for almost anything. So perhaps, we don't know, perhaps he took advantage of the laxed laws and was vague in his reasoning for separating from her. He doesn't want to shame her. Verse 20, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. 
how long did Joseph think about what to do? I mean, what Mary did and what he needed to do must have preoccupied his mind for quite some time. Disasters of, of this magnitude, they, they pervade your mind. They cling to you and will not let you go. They, they stick with you when you go to bed. And they do not leave until you finally fall asleep. Joseph makes up his mind about Mary, but the details continue to swirl in his mind as he goes to bed. Until at some point, he falls asleep. And then, an angel visits him. Now perhaps this is Gabriel, who appeared to Mary before. But he appeared to her while she was awake. Why wouldn't he do the same with Joseph? I mean, wouldn't Joseph be more sure if all this happened when he was awake? God visited many people in dreams in the Old Testament. And when he did, it's important to note that the people he appeared to never had any doubt that God had spoken to them. The same is true here. Joseph didn't have a, a bad slice of pizza the night before. Now he's just seeing strange things in his head. The angel and his message are as clear and real as day. Joseph hears Gabriel's words as if he were awake. And it couldn't be any other way, really. I mean, if Joseph's going to be persuaded about all of this, he's going to need more than just a blurry dream that he may forget when he wakes up. He needs something solid. And this is. Now, the message is even more bizarre than the appearance of the angel. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, have you ever spent hours, or maybe even days, trying to work out a problem, and, and you finally come to a solution only to find out that the problem is no longer an issue? We don't know how long Joseph thought about what to do with Mary, but what we do know is he delayed dealing with her. And it's a good thing he did, because Gabriel finally comes and tells him, everything you decided about Mary, that was a great, great course of action, but you, you can forget it all. She hasn't committed adultery. Instead, the child in her is from the Holy Spirit. What do you make of that bit of news from the Holy Spirit? When Gabriel appears to Mary announcing that she would bear a son, she asks how that would be possible with her being a virgin and all. Gabriel answers, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Well, Gabriel gives even less detail to Joseph. He just says the baby is from the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? And why is this baby conceived this way? We, we know more about the Spirit because we have the New Testament, but the Old Testament is, uh, has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit. And the first thing we know about the Holy Spirit is in connection to creation. The Spirit of God was at the creation of the world. And when God created Adam, Genesis 2 tells us that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now the word for breath is also the word for spirit. And all throughout the Old Testament... The Holy Spirit is the one who imparts life. 
In Ezekiel, for example, the Spirit of God breathes life into the corpses in the, in the, in the valley of bones and gives them new life. The Spirit is the author of life. He creates life from nothing. In Genesis, God created man from the dust of the ground. He then created woman from man. And now the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary and he creates a new man from her. We don't know the details, but if, if God wants to disrupt the, the natural way of reproduction and create life apart from that, he can. He created the reproductive system. But why does this child have to be conceived this way? And not only that, if that's true, how can this child be the heir to David's throne as the Christ is supposed to be if he's not even biologically Joseph's son? Joseph, who is an heir of David. Verse 21 says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary will not bear Joseph a son. She will just bear a son. However, Joseph is commanded to name the boy. Why is that important? Naming a child is the responsibility of the legal father. For Joseph to name the child, he's claiming the boy as his own. The angel is telling him to adopt the child as his own son. This child, though conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, is grafted into the human lineage of David. And so is an heir of David. But again, why do it this way? Why can't Mary conceive the natural way? Well, remember Genesis. Remember what happened shortly after the Holy Spirit created life. Adam and Eve chose to sin against God, and by doing so, they died. They were separated from the author of life. Death was introduced into the world. From then on, Generation after generation, father to son, sin and death have reigned. Just consider the list of people in the first chapter of Matthew. Each and every one of them, sinners. Some of them, extremely grave sinners. Since Adam, there's never been a person who did not have sin ingrained in them. A part of them. The psalmist David says that in sin my mother conceived me. There's no escaping sin. Mary herself is a sinner. From Adam on, sin has been transmitted to all humans. But here, here, God interrupts the transmission. Now because Mary is without sin, but because her child comes directly from God, not Adam. The child is human. He gets that from Mary. But he's created in the womb through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is new life apart from the stain of sin. A new Adam. And while the first Adam 
brought sin and death to all who came after him, this new Adam will do something different. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Names in scripture are important. Your name revealed something specific about your identity, and many times it signified how God would use you. Jesus comes from the Hebrew name Yehoshua, or Joshua, which means Yahweh will save, or Yahweh saves. Now, this was a worthy name for Joshua in the Old Testament. He led Israel into the land of Canaan to take possession of it. Joshua stood as a reminder that God will save his people, but he did more than that. Joshua was a type of another Savior to come. One who would bear the full meaning of the name Yahweh saves. Notice how the angel interprets the name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joshua did not save Israel. Israel was not Joshua's people. God saved his people Israel through Joshua. But pay close attention to the language Gabriel uses for Jesus. He says to Joseph, you will call his name Yahweh will save, for he will save his people from their sins. There is no separation between the God who saves and Jesus who saves. Jesus is not the agent of God's salvation. He is the Savior. Now remember, most Jews, perhaps even Joseph here, are waiting for a Messiah to come and save them from the Romans. But Jesus comes to save his people from their sins. A military leader might save you from earthly enemies, but who can save you from your sins? The entire story of the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1 is one of constant unfaithfulness to God. Even when God saved Israel from their earthly oppressors, and he was concerned about that, yet they always remained in the shackles of their sin. Always. A military leader, a political ruler, is just not enough. You can try to find someone to save you from earthly suffering. You can try to set up a peaceful life here on earth. Israel tried doing this by looking to kings and armies, some of them foreign nations. But it never works. It's because the problem is not the outward suffering. The problem is not Rome. The problem is sin. Every human being has been unfaithful to God who created them and gave them life. All of us have turned aside from God to go after our own desires. We have offended God through our rebellion against him. In our sin, we're not at peace with God. And though we were made in the image of God and to be with God forever, God's image in us has been distorted and we've been separated from him because of our sin. And we, we can't turn ourselves around. So what should God do? Well, God is just. He must deal with sin. Which means we're doomed to always be separated from God. We're not holy. We're not just. 
we deserve for God to judge us. And he would be right so to do. Heaven would, would praise him for it. God, being righteous, should come down and take us out. But God has come down to us. And he didn't take us out. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew says that all of this fulfills Isaiah 7, 14. We, we read that passage this morning. Now, in the Old Testament, sometimes what a prophet says is both an immediate fulfillment in his day and a fulfillment later in the future. In uh, that text of Isaiah 7, the city of Jerusalem is under siege by Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. The king of Judah, King Ahaz, thinks that the nation of Assyria will, will help him against his enemies, so he, he looks to them. But God tells Ahaz through Isaiah not to look to Assyria for help, but to look to Yahweh. So God gives a sign. Not just to Ahaz, but to the entire house of David, all of Judah and Jerusalem. And that sign was that a young woman would conceive and bear a son and call him Emmanuel. And before the child was old enough to understand right from wrong, Jerusalem's enemies would be gone. The boy, as he lived, would be a reminder to the people that God is with us. Well, that's exactly what happened. Syria and Israel were not successful in taking over Jerusalem, which means there must have been a child that was born to a particular woman, like Isaiah said. And we don't know who this woman was. Perhaps someone both Ahaz and Isaiah knew. Maybe someone betrothed to one of them. We don't know. The word for this woman in the Hebrew is Alma, meaning young woman. There was another word for specifically a virgin, but... Alma is used here. And this is used for a woman who is old enough to be married and, and who perhaps is betrothed. But an Alma, by virtue of being betrothed and not yet fully married, would still be a virgin. So it's interesting that Isaiah says the Alma will conceive. Virgin will conceive. Well, she's not a virgin anymore. <laughs> if she conceives... When she conceives, she won't be an Alma anymore. Well, the translators of the Hebrew picked up on this. They translated Alma in the Greek, Parthenos, which is virgin. means virgin. But why call the woman a virgin if you're focusing on how she will conceive a child? Well, because there's another child in view as well. One that will come much later. It's true that the first Emmanuel in Isaiah's day was a, a sign of God's presence, but Judah continued to distrust God. The, the whole house of David, all of the kings, continually turned from God and led his people astray. And so in Isaiah 9, the theme of this child to come is picked up again. But this time, the child will bear the weight of the government on his own shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
The first Emmanuel was not this. But the second is. The Emmanuel in Isaiah's day was a sign that God will be with his people and protect them from outward enemies. But what about the enemy within? What about sin that continued to rule in everyone's hearts? Matthew understands Isaiah 7.14 to be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. He was truly born of a virgin. And he is not only a sign of God's presence, he is God with us. John puts it this way in the first chapter of his gospel. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God did not come down to wipe us out. God took on flesh. He came among us so that he may redeem us. God with us would be terrifying in a different circumstance. What is it like when God, who has felt all your sins against him, and who is just, and cannot look upon sin, what happens when he comes to be with you? comes to your home. What do you do? Do you hide like Adam and Eve who fled from God's presence in the garden? God being with us as sinners is bad news. But if God wanted to show us that he was coming down to judge us, he could have just split the skies open and just send down fire upon us. But instead... He himself comes in the form of a baby. He takes on humanity. Why would he do that? Well, to restore humanity. To heal the image of God that we damaged through our sin. And yet, isn't God just? Why does he choose to redeem us instead of rightfully destroy? Because he is the God who, as Ezekiel 33.11 puts it, has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. God is righteous. He takes no pleasure in sin. But he's not a bloodthirsty, megalomaniac, who takes pleasure in watching sinners perish either. If sinners will not repent, God will punish them. But God much more desires that sinners turn from their sin so that they may live. And for that, he delays his judgment and comes close to us to restore our corrupt nature. Joseph, understanding this about God, also delays his dealings with Mary. He's not quick to jump to wrath, but slow to consider how to show mercy. I think Joseph, hearing all of this, understands what God is doing on a personal level. So verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. He obeys. 
Joseph may not understand all the details, but he takes Mary as his wife and he adopts Jesus. God's righteousness is not only in his punishment of the wicked, though it can be that, and is. God is also righteous in keeping his promises to his people. And he promised long ago that someone from the line of Abraham and David would come and save his people from their sins. God is just in keeping his promise to show mercy and forgiveness to the one who repents. This is why Joseph's unwillingness to shame Mary was a righteous act. He was displaying the mercy of God, the compassion of God, who does not desire to shame the sinner, but to bring them to repentance. And what is repentance? Well, it's not hiding from God out of shame of your sin, but calling out to God for mercy. And you can do this because God has come near to you in Jesus Christ. He'll hear you. He came to save you from your sins. So you don't need to be ashamed of your sins in his presence. Confess them. He'll heal you. Trust in him. He'll forgive you. As a human, Jesus is able to stand as your representative. As God, he is without sin. So not needing to pay for any sin of his own and being able to take the full weight of wrath on sin, he is the perfect, blameless sacrifice for your sins. And he gives you his own righteousness when you place your trust in him. He rose from the grave, putting an end to death once and for all. And though Jesus is in heaven now, his spirit lives within you. God is with you today. When you place your faith in Christ, you're born again as a new creation. The spirit gives you new life. And though in your flesh you still sin, just as Christ received you when you first believed, he still receives you today. He does this because he's finished the job of saving his people from their sins. There's not a day you wake up and God is not with you. Jesus is ever present, ready to forgive, ready to help, ready to guide you, and ready to comfort you. Let's pray. Jesus, we praise you and thank you for coming to live a perfect life for us that we could not do and to die the death that we deserved for our sin. Thank you for rising from the grave, for giving us your spirit, for making us alive. Thank you for taking the initiative and coming to us because we would not come to you. We praise you and thank you. And we ask, Lord, that you would, um, you would help us to receive from your hands this morning this gift once again. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.